are listening to a podcast from C3 Church Wallandilly. For more episodes and information, please visit our website at c3wc.com forward slash Wallandilly or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash C3 Wallandilly. There's, there's a, a very common hashtag that is used a lot. You can probably look at it on Instagram and you'll see the hashtag you do you. Has anyone ever heard the term you do you? You hear that it's almost become colloquial in our language in the last couple of years. You do you. And, and while it has some, some value taken to an extreme, it can also be unhealthy. And I think probably it's the whole concept of you do who you are, you be who you are, you value who you are, that isn't always in itself bad because, because maybe our society and our culture had been a bit too dominant and a bit too controlling at times. And so people have had to get, a, we've had to get an understanding, our young people have had to get an understanding that, no, you've got something valuable to add to the world. You, you are an individual. You're not just part of a machine. You can add value to life. That can be healthy. But it can get to the point where it's taken to an extreme, where it's like, well, I'll do what I do. You do what you do. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. And you don't tell me what to do. Now, it's, it kind of even sounds good to a point, but the problem is, whether we like it or not, that's a boundary statement. I'm, by saying, well, I've got my boundaries and you've got your boundaries, that is a boundary statement. You be who you are. Don't you tell me how, what you've done is you've just put up boundaries between yourself and another person. And the problem with boundaries is whenever two different people have a dispute about where the boundary is, you've got a problem. Think about wars throughout history. As long as the boundaries aren't in dispute, people will get on with each other. Wars happen when there is dispute around the boundaries. That's what happens in our lives when there is dispute around the boundaries. So this whole you do you kind of, you be who you are, you just don't let anyone control you, you you do what's right for you, it can become dangerous. And so we've got these relational boundaries and we've got moral boundaries. And, and I think what it's important for us to know as, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, we need to be aware that, that every choice we make has moral implications. And sometimes we spend a lot of time talking about the big moral things. You know, there's a lot of talk in the media at the moment around abortion and LGBT and all what we would think is big moral issues. But there are, we, we need to understand as Christians that every choice we make has moral implications for how it affects person next have I violated the boundaries of that person next to me have I respected them as an individual and it doesn't always have to be the big things I think we we can make it all about the big things and miss the small things which are really important for having and living a successful and healthy life so how do we do that well we need to get a handle on these social boundaries we need and that a lot of what the Proverbs talks about is is what do social boundaries look like what does it look like when I relate to other people. We, we can fall into two extremes when it comes to boundaries. The first boundary says, well, you do you. You only look after yourself. You don't worry about anybody else. And the second boundary says, well, you know, you're supposed to be a Christian. Just lay down your life and be a doormat and just, you know, put yourself out there and have no, don't be aware of any limits you have. Just look after everybody else. That's not healthy either. Some of us are going to get on a plane tomorrow morning and as the plane's taxiing down the runway, the stewards and stewardesses are going to say, you know, they're going to, they're going to give you the traditional you know, oxygen mask thing. What are they going to say to us? They're going to say, before you put the oxygen mask on somebody else, what do they say to do? Put it on yourself. Why is that? Because if you're out of oxygen, you're of no benefit to anybody else. Sometimes when we, we just lay down our lives exclusively 
we'll burn ourselves out and then we're of no good to our family. We're of no good to our church. So understanding and getting these boundaries right are important. Both extremes. I'll just look after me and my family and what's right for me. That's not healthy. Well, this other extreme is I'm not going to take any notice of my own limitations. I'm just going to burn myself out in the glory of God. That's not healthy either. We have to understand healthy boundaries. So I want to recommend to you uh, the book that I mentioned last week. It's a simple book. You won't forget it. It's called Boundaries. If you look up Boundaries, I recommend you get yourself a copy of that book by Henry Glau and John Townsend. It's a bestseller. Um, and it has a lot to say that we won't be able to cover in this series. But Pastor Ivana, you're speaking next week, aren't you? Pastor Ivana is going to be preaching next week, talking about relationships. Basically, there we go. So that's along the lines of what, what we're talking about. And so today I wanted to take us back, and you probably, if you've been around church for a while, you're probably thinking, when is Pastor Rowan going to get off this topic of the Garden of Eden? Because I've been talking about it a lot lately. Um, you're pretty much going to find that Pastor Rowan isn't going to get off the topic of the Garden of Eden. Okay, I, I am um, getting in-depth into this topic myself, and, and what I am seeing in this topic is so important for us in life. And so uh, it's, it's becoming to me the filter through which I live and recognize my life. And so if you're new to our church, I see some faces I don't necessarily maybe haven't met before, haven't recognized, welcome to church. If you, maybe you're new to the faith and you think, well, what's all that about the Garden of Eden? Or perhaps you've heard those strange stories about what Christians believe about the Garden of Eden and you think, what on earth is all that about? You know, why would eating from the tree cause all this mess in the first place? You know? And when it comes to the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, I want to talk to those of you who would consider yourself Christians for a moment. Because I think sometimes we Christians become very fundamentalist in our thinking and our whole focus around the story of the Garden of Eden is to, is to just go out there and try and prove that the story is real. That Adam and Eve were real and there really was a tree and all that sort of stuff. And I don't want to comment specifically on what people believe about the Garden of Eden in that sense. You know, I... I I tend to take the literal view of Scripture. So I tend to think, when I read it, I think there was a literal garden with a literal tree. But, but I don't know that having to hold to that emphatically is necessary 100% in order to understand the message of Scripture. I do hold to that, but I don't want you to dismiss me just because I, I would hold to that. But I think, talking to you Christians for a moment, that when we spend so much time focusing on whether or not it really happened, trying to prove our point, we miss the importance of the story for our lives. Because the story that begins in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 of the Garden of Eden, that story is picked up and commentated on throughout the rest of Scripture. And we are supposed to see ourselves in the Garden of Eden. You and I, as human beings are supposed to see that Adam and Eve are representative of all humanity. The word Adam, Adam, means humanity. So Adam and Eve are representative. They're our parents. They're representing all of us. So it's very easy to kind of distance ourselves and think, well, if they just didn't eat from that tree, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. It's all Adam's fault. It's all Eve's fault. If they just had done what they were told, we wouldn't be in this mess. But this is the, this is the narrative of the story. Every one of us, sit at the foot of that tree every day. Every one of us have choices as to what we are going to do. Are we going to define what's right and wrong for ourselves, what's good and evil for ourselves? 
or are we going to trust that what God says is good and right? Are we going to do that or are we going to define it to ourselves? It's not that it was some thousands of years ago, two people in a garden doing that. It's that you're supposed to see yourself there. You're supposed to see yourself with these boundaries in your world. That's what we're going to look at. And if you can place yourself, if we can place ourselves in that story and then understand the theme that is picked up and carried forward from that story, it is one of, if not the greatest, commentary on human behavior, behavioral science that you will ever see. Thousands of years old, and yet it is as valid today as it was the day it was written. And the theme that I want to talk about today is wisdom. Wisdom. The theme of wisdom is a is like a thread all the way through Scripture. Those of us that did the Proverbs Challenge, you may have watched the first video this week, and it was saying how wisdom is kind of pictured as being threaded into, into creation. God has, has put the world together with wisdom. It's like, a, it's like the force in Star Wars. It's like this, this uh, unseen entity, power, that is, is God has created the world with the, the Hebrew word is chokhmah, meaning wisdom. He has, he's formed that and put that in the world. And this theme is threaded throughout Scripture all the way through from the beginning until the end. God is saying to us, I want you as my representatives on earth to be wise. I want you to make wise choices, wise choices that honor me on the earth. This theme of wisdom is where I'm going today. Is that okay? Wise people will understand that their own and other people's boundaries, they'll understand that and that will help them to be successful in life. A wise person gets the boundaries. A wise person doesn't violate wrong boundaries. A wise person doesn't put boundaries up where there's not supposed to be boundaries. A wise person puts the right boundaries in the right place and pulls down the wrong boundaries. An unwise person has no understanding with regard to what are healthy boundaries in the world. And so we're going to pick the story up in Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. Genesis chapter 1 and two are the story of creation. Genesis chapter three is the story of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis chapter one, at the end, after God has crowned creation, he's done seven days creating all these things, he creates the pinnacle of all creation, which is humanity. So verse 27 of Genesis one says, so God created human beings in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Just before this, in verse 26, God had said, let us make humans like us. So the understanding that we need to understand is, understanding we need to understand, the thing we need to understand is that God's intention for you and I is that we would be like him. We would be like him. That's a pretty cool statement when you think about it, that we have the opportunity to be like God. We have the opportunity to be created in his image. People should look at you and I and they should see an imprint, an image of God. That's a very high calling, yeah? Sadly, we, as you know, we, we don't often live up to it. I rarely live up to that myself at times. You know, we have bad experiences. But that was God's intention, that we would be like him, that we would be in his image. Then, verse 28, then God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Fruitfulness and multiplication are part of 
your calling as a human being. You are not put on this planet to consume. You are put on this planet to produce, to multiply, to represent God. When a person consumes, when their whole life is about what can I get from others, they don't have healthy boundaries. We aren't here to consume. We are mandated, imaged by God to represent him and produce and multiply. And yes, the picture is the picture of a man and a woman physically multiplying. You know, Genesis just before this tells us, now the next chapter tells us that God understood that Adam couldn't fulfill this mandate on his own because he needed another one in order to be able to multiply. But there is a physical multiplication here, but there is the concept that everything we do in life God's intention and plan and desire for you and I is that we would multiply, that it would be fruitful, that it would that it would produce in all areas, whether that be a financial production or a relational production or a biological production, all of it, God's intention is that we would be fruitful, we would multiply, we would have this dominion, this high calling. And with this high calling, this word reign here, that, that's a lot of autonomy. That and sometimes, look, if I'm honest, sometimes I look at I think about this story. And I think, why did God give Adam and Eve so much authority so early on? Hands up if you're a parent in this place. If your five-year-old says, Dad, could I, Mom, could I drive the car? What are you going to say? You're going to say, not on your chance. You've got to wait another 13 years before you're going to... And then, even then, you prove it, right? Why? Because we grow into wisdom. We grow into understanding. We grow into boundaries. You know, hopefully as children grow and mature, they, understand, they come to this point where they understand what boundaries are helpful, what is good boundaries and what are unhelpful boundaries. And so if I'm honest, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, God, what was the story behind that? Why did you give him so much autonomy right from the beginning? Isn't that like the three-year-old giving the keys to the car? I think I have an answer, but I'm just... I think I have an answer. I think I've worked it. I think the answer is that comes out in a minute. God wasn't actually upfront giving them as much autonomy as they would take it. Take it. God's intention, just like we do with our children, is that He would grow them and mature them into wisdom. That their their knowledge was in a in a premature form, and God was basically saying, if you hang out with me like a child, hang around his parent, eventually hang out with me enough, and I'll teach you what's right and what's wrong and you'll mature and you'll grow in that. I haven't got time to go into all of that t- today. But I think that's where it's going. But it's fair to say that God gave Adam and Eve and humanity a lot of autonomy. God has given us a lot of autonomy on this planet today. Humans have incredible power over this planet. God says, I want you to represent me on the face of the planet. But with great authority comes great responsibility. When a child finally gets the keys to the car, there's a great responsibility parents have entrusted them. God says, I'm going to let you represent me on this earth. God stepped back and says, I want to partner with you. Humans, I want you to represent me. I want you to rule the earth as if it were I ruling. That is a very high calling. Unfortunately, the story goes on and humanity did not do that well and humanity continues not to do that very well. So the big picture being painted is that we're going to need to know that in order to do what God has called us to do, God's saying to humanity, 
you're going to need to know wisdom. You're going to need to know what's right and what's wrong. You're going to need to know how to make wise choices, not just for your relationships, for the planet. We're stewards of the planet. We're going to need to know how do we represent, image God on the world. And God's, the picture is God's saying is, I'm going to teach you that. If you hang out with me for long enough, I'll teach you what's right and wrong. Don't short circuit it. Trust me and I will teach you what's right and wrong. Now let's go over to chapter two where God kind of hones in a little bit more on this couple, Adam and Eve, this representative of all humanity. Verse 15 says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat from every tree in the garden. I want you to stop and think about that. Imagine you're in that garden and God has said to you, you have, see, look as far as you can see all around. All of this, you can freely eat from it. I think of Simba and Mufasa and how he can see all of that. But what's Simba instantly drawn to? Beyond what he can't have, what is not part of his territory. Simba, Mufasa is basically saying, all of this is our kingdom. Oh, but I want what's on the other side. You may freely eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden. The point here is that this is a gift from God. They didn't work for this. The working begins after the garden is planted. God has given us incredible freedom. He says, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden we read in the next chapter. So here is this tree, and what God has effectively done is said, that's the boundary for you. That, that tree is off limits. Everything else you can have. That tree, you can't eat of that tree. I like to think of boundaries. I don't tend to think of it as the tree you can't have. I think of it as a paddock, you know, and God has put some boundaries around the outside of the paddock. And like, I just, like Simba, we all want to see what's on the other side. We have sayings like the grass is greener on the other side, but how often is the grass not greener on the other side? We take our eyes off all the beautiful things that God has freely given us within the boundaries and we want what's outside the boundaries. We want to short circuit God's plan. God's saying, I want you to have a good life. You represent me. There's so much goodness in the world that I have freely given to you. Except that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that fruit, you're sure to die. This tree has to, whether it's a literal tree or not, it represents to you and I so much more than them eating a piece of fruit. I've said this before, but let me say it again. Is knowing good and evil a bad thing or a good thing? Say it loud. It's a good thing, isn't it? We should know what's right, good and evil. It's actually not a great reference. I like to use the words right and wrong. That's probably, that's my understanding. Knowing what's right and wrong, that's a good thing. We're going to see in the next chapter that God actually, he also knows what's right and wrong. He actually has the knowledge of good and evil. So if God's got it, it can't be bad. It must be a good thing. So knowing right and wrong is not a bad thing. It wasn't that Adam and Eve were knowing right and wrong. It was that they were trying to determine for themselves what was right and wrong. They were doing hashtag you do you 4,000, 5,000 years ago. Instead of saying, no, God will tell me what's right and wrong. I'm going to learn wisdom for life from hanging out with my father, trusting his word, trusting what he says to me, trusting that what he says, even if it doesn't always make sense to me, that if he says that tree is off limits, I'm going to 
treat it like it's off limits. I'm going to trust that he knows best for me. So we have these boundaries. We're supposed to trust God's boundaries and that he in time will show us what's right and wrong. That is, he will show us how to make wise choices for life. Let's go on to chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest. Actually, the word shrewd there, guess what the word is? Could be translated just as easily as wise. The serpent was the wise. See, wisdom isn't all God. Wisdom, there's a difference between godly wisdom and wisdom. We're, we're talking, talking, to, talking to Mari in the car on the way here, and she was saying how she often sees people who aren't followers of Jesus who are incredibly wise. Wisdom is knowing what to do and how to do it. But I've met some very shrewd, wise people who use and manipulate their wisdom to violate the boundaries of other people. Adolf Hitler was a very wise man, used his shrewdness, his wisdom, not to honour God, but to violate the boundaries of other races. So wisdom in itself, we need to go, no, 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 it's not just about knowing what to do, it's about knowing how to use what I know to imprint God onto the world around me. That People look at me and they see God, they see Oh, the way you just treated me, that's the way God treats me. That's using godly wisdom. So the serpent was shrewd in all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree, any of the trees in the garden? He starts to question the boundaries. It's, that's what he's essentially doing. He's saying, so where are these boundaries that you talk about? Of course we may eat from the tree in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. God said nothing about not touching it. He's said not eating of it. It's important that you and I know our boundaries. The moment we think that we know the boundaries and we haven't read the scriptures, we haven't read what God, we start to get into you-do-you mode. We need to know what our boundaries are. The serpent, verse 4, says, you won't die. The serpent replied, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be, your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat of it, and you will be like God. Hang on a second. Weren't they already like God? They were. Your children are like you. You are like your parents. You may not have all the experience and wisdom of life yet, but you are like your parents. Humanity is supposed to be like God. This was basically, if you like, the serpent saying to the three-year-old, just drive the car. It'll be fine. You know what's best for you. You do you. You can drive that car. They were already like God. They just had to trust that God would show them the knowledge of what's right and wrong. He would give them wisdom for life in his time, in his way. So they were to be like God, he says. You'll know good and evil. You'll know right and wrong. The woman was convinced. She sees this is a short circuit. This is a shortcut to wisdom. She saw that it was beautiful. She saw that it was beautiful. It was appealing. Things outside our boundaries often look appealing. I wrote down some examples. Let's keep that money for ourselves. My son Nathan got his first paycheck this week and I helped him to put his tithes in. And my Nathan, who loves the Lord, said already straight away, he goes, imagine what I could do with that money. And I just straight away went back to the garden and said, that's off limits. I said, that's about trusting God. I mean, he was fine. He was just saying, imagine what I could do with that extra bit $700, $70 or whatever it was his tithe was. What could I do with that? It's always appealing. Keep that 
for myself. It's human nature. Oh, those inappropriate relationships. I, I want that relationship with that person. Uh, that, that person appeals to me and that person isn't my spouse. Sin, temptation always looks beautiful. It, there's something drawing about it. Its fruit looked good, delicious. This is the bit where we pick up the wisdom theme for the first time. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. To me, I actually think that's the part that we often miss because we focus on all the other stuff. She was trying to short-circuit God's plan for what's right and wrong. She was determining, I'm going to take of this for myself. The problem with that was that the moment we define right and wrong by our own terms rather than God's, we will end up violating what's right and wrong for somebody else. We do this as families, as individuals, as families, as churches, as communities, and as nations, and as societies and cultures. When the Western world says, we are going to live by, uh, you, know, you know, we're going to just get the cheapest clothes we can possibly get, and we don't stop to think about where those clothes are made, we are defining right and wrong by our own standards. Do you understand what I'm saying? We aren't taking into account that we are getting what we want, something cheap, at the expense of other people working in sweatshops in nations in horrible working conditions. Who are... And because it's not us, we don't think it's us, but our choices have affected it. This issue goes very deep into society. Every day we are faced with choices that are moral choices. Which shop you walk into, to buy your... I'm just one example. Which shop you walk into to buy your clothes it's a moral choice. It's a moral choice. That's why there is a, a massive move in the clothing industry to, and it's good, it's a good move now for, for companies to be forced to say, isn't that right, Pastor? Forced to say where their clothes are made. Why? Because at least our society is starting to wake up to this is a moral choice. We are defining what's right for me and my family and my nation at the expense of somebody else. It's not wisdom. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, but she, didn't, she failed to see that the wisdom it would give her would be at the expense of other people. So she took some. God gave freely, she took. God wants to give us good things, but we want to take what he has said won't be good for us. He said to trust him. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So we've got the word shame there. We'll keep going. They hid from the Lord their God among the, the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid because I was afraid, because I was naked. The moment... They defined what was right and wrong for themselves. The manifestation of that is shame, hiding, and fear. Isn't that a recipe for what happens in our world? When we say what's right for us, when we violate God's moral choices, we end up with hiding, shame, fear, blame. It's often, so often, the result of making unwise choices, violating the boundaries that are healthy for us. But so often we find out out after the fact. We find out that the temptation was the serpent's temptation that God's really holding out on you. And we find out too late that he wasn't holding out on us. He was actually looking out for us. 
He wasn't holding out on us. He was looking out for us. Isn't that what we do in parents? Sometimes our teenagers think we're holding out on them. But we're actually looking out for them. We know what's best. Why do we know? Because we made the same flipping mistakes. We ate from the tree. We're trying to encourage our teenagers, don't eat from the tree. God wasn't holding out on us. He was looking out for us. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, blame. It was the woman you gave me, blame, who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Like I had no choice in the matter. I was just a victim in the circumstances here. That's what Adam is saying. Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. And that's why I ate. Here's the thing. The tree of the knowledge of right and wrong that we all sit at every day will always deceive us. Life will deceive us. The world's message towards you in social media, young people, it will deceive you. It's deceptive. God wants you to trust his wisdom. God deliberately doesn't explain everything. But that's what parents do. We say, one day, as you get older, it'll make sense. We'll explain it to you. But right now, you just need to know, don't run on the road. You just need to know that that's a boundary for you. God wants us to, he wants to teach us to trust his wisdom. So this theme of wisdom goes from here, it gets picked up throughout the scripture. And I could, I haven't got time to go through all of them, but it, probably one major place it gets picked up after this is, is the law of Moses. God was setting up a new nation who were supposed to be a reenactment of Adam and Eve. They were supposed to be God's representative humans, that they would rule the earth on behalf of God and they would show the world what God was like. And so God puts this law into place, these, these principles for life. And those rules, those, those guidelines, we can look at them and we can think, well, our God was antiquated or God was outdated or God was so harsh on them. But if you compare those laws with the laws of the nations around about them, God was setting a very high moral standard. He was saying, if you will live by this standard, you will care for the widow. You will care for the orphan. You will care for the foreigner. You will care for the the person that's downtrodden and poor in life. God was trying to set a standard that says, don't just take from the tree for yourself. I've called you to rule the earth on my behalf. I want you to represent my generosity to the world. That's what the law is supposed to be about. It was a higher standard of wisdom so that they could represent God like Adam and Eve were supposed to represent God. And then we get to the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs that we're in right now. This book is supposed to be, there are links back to the garden all through the book. Wisdom is like a tree of life, is in the book of Proverbs. All the way through, if you're reading the book of Proverbs this week, read it thinking about the Garden of Eden. You'll see all the analogies back there. God is saying, if, basically what God is saying is if you will live out the book of Proverbs, if you will live the book of Proverbs, that is trusting that I'm teaching you what's right and wrong rather than you trying to define it for yourself. The wise person lives God's way. The foolish person defines right and wrong for themselves. Throughout the book of Proverbs, you see this. And it's a picture of the foolish person eating from the tree themselves. Wise person trusts God. That's the whole wisdom literature. And then... The whole wisdom theme gets picked up again in the New Testament. The Bible calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of Adam and Eve's mandate. Jesus was the one through which the final humanity's calling, high calling to live and represent God to the earth was fulfilled. 
Jesus now, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you're part of his family and you're expected to continue that, to represent him, to represent Jesus, represent God's kingdom on earth, to live wisely. And I wrote this in one of my devotions this week. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 is is an interesting, all put together, it's like a commentary on the life of the fool. And I always compare Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 with Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Proverbs is all about how to live a foolish life. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about how to live the wise life. Does anybody know what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is? Sermon on the Mount. Very good, Lyle. Sermon on the Mount. And as you see, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it all links back. It all hyperlinks straight back to the garden as well. It's about wise living. So I want to spend a moment just looking at some, before we wrap up today, some of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I'm going to begin with his commentary at the end of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when he sums it all up. And this show, the reason I'm doing this is because this shows you what Jesus was teaching and why he was teaching. And really, Matt, the Sermon on the Mount is about how to be wise, how to represent God on the earth. So we're just going to look at some of it. Verse, chapter 7, verse 24 says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is what? Wise. Ah, see, the link back. If you will do what I've just told you to do, you will be a wise person. Like a person who builds their house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in, the torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it was built on bedrock. We understand the importance, don't we, of building buildings onto solid foundations. Jesus is saying any person who hears what I say and what? Follows it. See, Eve heard God say, it's not wise to eat from that tree, but she didn't follow it. How often we don't follow it. James puts it this way. So anyone who looks into the scriptures and sees what it says and doesn't do it is the same as a person who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what they look like. It's not enough just to read your Bible. It's enough. It has to, to be wise, you have to do your Bible. You have to know it and you have to do it. Jesus says, anyone who hears my teaching doesn't, you know, and follows it is wise. And then he goes on, anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Can you see the parallel? Jesus is referring to the book of Proverbs here. Last week I introduced you to Mr. Fool and Mr. Mr. Wise. This is, Jesus is linking back to this. He's saying, if you want to do life, do Proverbs well. Do my teaching well. Otherwise you'll be foolish. That person is like a person who builds their house on sand. When the rain and the floods come, the winds beat against that house. It will collapse with a mighty crash. So Jesus is commenting here and making a direct link to Proverbs. In fact, earlier in the chapter, as we're going to see now, Jesus actually links it back to the law of Moses, which was supposed to be the wise principles through which Israel could image God and represent God on the earth and live to this high moral standard that is the heart of God, generosity and love and compassion and all that. And so Jesus starts, we go back to chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, you've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. That's actually, for those that may not know, that's actually one of the Ten Commandments, and it's in Law of Moses. It was one of the ten foundational principles by which God was setting up a nation. Do not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you were even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And we need to put that in context. Jesus, the context here isn't that you're feeling anger. This isn't about feeling anger. This is about acting on your anger. We all feel anger at people at times. And anger isn't necessarily sin. 
what you do with your anger. So they had said, well, the, the law says as long as I don't murder somebody, I'm not subject to judgment. I can be angry with them. I can fight with them. I can abuse them. I can uh, you know, discredit them. I can do anything I want as long as I don't murder them. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If you act on your anger in any way that violates the boundary of another person, you're subject to judgment. It's boundaries talk is what it is. He's taken the moral law that was here and he's just elevated it so much higher. He said, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus elevates the moral standard to a higher calling. Why? Because God expected us to grow in our morality so that we would not, you do you. We wouldn't take for ourselves. We would be a generous, loving people. My heart for us as a church is we continue to grow in the way that we imprint God to those around us. We become increasingly more generous, increasingly more compassionate, increasingly more loving, that when people see us and our church, they meet Jesus. Verse 43, he goes on, he says, you've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We talked about this one last Saturday. Apparently you talked about this in your gathering a couple of weeks ago. You've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law didn't say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. The hate your enemy bit came later. God doesn't say, hate your enemy. He's going to say, that was people trying to interpret what God had said. And they thought, well, if we're supposed to love our neighbors, that means we obviously don't love people who aren't our neighbors. That wasn't God's intention. It says, I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. That should hyperlink you back to the garden again. Can you see that? He's saying, if you will love like I loved, you will truly be my child. You will be my Adam. You will be my humanity. You will be doing the ruling on earth. You will be representing me on earth if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many people say, that's not easy, Lord? <laughs> I say, that's not easy. That's what living a Christian is like. That's the high calling of humanity. You will be true fathers of your children in heaven. For he gives. Remember, God said, I've given you all of this in the garden. He gives his sunlight to both evil and good. He gives it to everybody. He's, God's free with his generosity. So I want you to be free with your generosity. You be like me. You don't do you, you do me is probably where we should start a hashtag, you do me. Hashtag God. God's saying, you do me. I'm generous with all people. You be loving and generous with all people. If you do that, you will truly reflect me. You will be children of your Father in heaven. Verse 46. For if you only love those who, you, who love you, what reward is that? That's actually the same as taking from the tree and defining for myself and my tribe and my family and my church what's right. If I only love mine, I actually, not only have I, I actually haven't been loving, I've been selfish. I have said, I'm going to eat from that tree. I'm going to send something to my family. I'm going to look after my, but everyone else, no, they don't get any of this. So rather than actually being loving, it's being unloving to do that. This is even corrupt tax collectors, even people who are outside of my kingdom, they even do that much. They're always looking out for themselves and their tribe. If you're only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. 
but you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Once again, reference to Genesis 1. You are to represent me. Be perfect on earth as I am perfect. This is okay? Nearly finished. Verse 27. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is boundaries talking right here. This is saying the moment you look at another person with lust, you have violated that person's integrity and that person's boundaries. This is the, this is the lie that the porn industry has set us. Oh, it's not hurting anybody. It's just me. No, it's actually violating the boundaries of another person. Violating their boundary. This isn't just about sexuality. This applies to finances. This applies to every arena of life. The moment we say, I want what they have, I have violated their boundary. I have chosen to do what's good for me. And that is a moral choice. Do not for a moment think, and I, I'm guilty of this. I'm thinking, well, this choice is good for me. I want this right now. I'm learning as I mature, hopefully getting better at going, hang on, my choice is actually going to affect other people. This doesn't just affect my life. This affects my family's life. This affects my church. I I don't have the luxury as your senior pastor to just make choices that I want to make because the implications of those choices are going to violate other people's boundaries too. I'm so grateful for the grace of God. That's all I can say. This isn't about, you know, we're, we're... this is why we need a Savior. This is why we need Jesus, because we all fall short of this. But Jesus isn't saying this stuff to say, okay, now that I've told you all this, I want you to know none of you can ever do any of this. Therefore, just accept me and have a relationship with me. He's actually saying, apart from me, you can't do this. But with me, I'm going to teach you to do this. With me, I'm going to show you the knowledge of right and wrong. I'm going to teach you how to live right. Make sense? And he gets really strong. He says, so if you're I causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. He's not actually saying gouge your eye out. He's using extreme figures of speech here to say when it comes to boundaries, be vicious with them. Be ruthless with making sure that you don't violate your own boundaries and you don't violate other people's boundaries. Be serious about this. We have to take drastic measures to firm up healthy boundaries in our world. Now I want to finish with two more, three more verses out of the book of James. See, James, the brother of Jesus, reflecting on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, reflecting on the Garden of Eden, reflecting on the book of Proverbs, he puts together this incredible three verses about wisdom for life. And when, hopefully when you read these verses now, you'll read them in the light of everything I've just shared and what you've been reading this week in Proverbs. Verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God. He'll give it to you. All the trees in the garden. He's generous. He's not holding out on you. He's looking out for you. His intention has always been to give us wisdom. God wasn't holding back that tree and saying, you can't have that wisdom that that tree offers. He was saying, if you'll trust me, I'll teach you that wisdom. I'll show it to you. Don't take it for yourself. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God. He'll give it to you. He won't rebuke you for asking. You see, if Adam had have walked up to God in the, in the garden one afternoon and said, 
you know what? I need some wisdom. I've got to work out why the elephants keep treading on the strawberries. I need some wisdom. God wouldn't say, oh, sorry, that's off limits. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He'd say, well, I'm glad you asked me. Maybe you should just move the elephants a bit further down the paddock, away from the, away from the strawberry. Good idea. I hadn't thought of that, God. God was wanting to give Adam and Eve wisdom. God wants to give us wisdom. He's not holding out on us. He's looking out for us. He wants us to ask him if we need something. Problem was, we don't ask. We just take. We go, I know what's best. I know what's right. I read it on, I read it on Reddit. It must be true. <laughs> I've probably trodden a few toes right there. Reddit is full of conspiracy theories, by the way. I read it on Reddit. It must be true. But if it's contradictory to the scripture or you don't know the scripture, which one are you going to believe? How many, I've met so many Christians who believe what they read on Reddit and they don't even know their Bible. They're defining right and wrong by their own standards rather than trusting God. He'll not rebuke you if you ask. But when you do ask, be sure your faith is in God alone. This is the garden speaking again. Oh, I don't know if I can trust him. What if he tells me to do something and I don't like it? What if he tells me not to do something and I want to do it? I don't know if, I, I don't know if he's really got my best intentions as hard. Was he really looking out for you? This is garden speak. You've got to have this wisdom that says, I trust that if I ask God and I open the scriptures or I talk to a leader and they tell me something from the scripture, even if it doesn't make sense to me right now, I trust that God is looking out for me. I'm going to trust it even if it doesn't make sense. I'm going to have faith in God. Don't waver. For the person who wavers with divided loyalties, this is Eve, this is Adam is unsettled as a wave on the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. We need to trust God's boundaries. It's wavering that got Adam and Eve in the mess in the first place. It's wavering that gets us in the mess. Verse 7, such people should not expect to receive anything from God. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. Between you do me and you do you. Thanks for listening today. For more episodes and information, please visit our website at c3wc.com forward slash Wallandilly or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash c3wallandilly.